Greetings, and welcome to the official podcast of CallUponTheLord.com. My name's Corey Wigington, and this is episode 19. This week, we are on week 19 of The Great Story. We're going to be looking at the return from captivity. So this is where the children of Israel, or basically the nation of Judah, goes from captivity in Babylon, and they're sent home, or at least part of them are. So... If you have not done so already, I encourage you to go out to the website. That's www.calluponthelord.com. Go to the Bible study section under Corey Wigington, The Great Story. Scroll down to week 19, and you will find your study guide. So, that's what I teach from every week. If you have not done so, go out to Facebook. Like us there. We're at facebook.com slash calluponthelord. We're also on Twitter. Just follow us at Call Upon the Lord. I've also added all these videos to GodTube, but if you're watching them here on YouTube, uh, that's great as well. YouTube has the better quality videos because there is a, a limit to the size that your videos can take up on GodTube. But regardless where, where you're watching this content at, I'm very happy that you're doing so because that means you're studying the Word of God and you're doing the right thing. So, shall we get started on this week? Week 19. <clears throat> so, the introduction. We're going to start here in Daniel. Since we left off in Daniel last week, I figured it'd be good to pick up in Daniel this week. Because Daniel kind of starts this whole process. In Daniel 9, 1-3, it says, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of, uh, by descent of Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Now, we talked about that last week. Jeremiah had prophesied, of course, that there would be a 70-year captivity in, Jeru or in Babylon, Babylon uh, in order for the Jews to basically make restitution for not keeping the Sabbath every seventh year. Uh, of course, that was just one of the, the reasons they were sent down to Babylon. main reason, of course, is that they were idolatrous and they weren't keeping the commandments of God and they were a rebellious nation and God needed to teach them a lesson. But the 70-year time period came from the fact that they had not kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath year on the land, for 490 years. So God extracted 70 years, basically each seventh year that should have been a Sabbath, extracted those 70 years and made them into a time of captivity. So Daniel, being the, the man of God that he was, he was studying the scriptures and he was reading through the prophecies of Jeremiah. And he sees, ah, right, the captivity is only supposed to last for 70 years, and it's been right about 70 years. It's time for us to go home. So, uh, Daniel begins here in chapter 9. He prays. And we talked about this a little bit last week, about the pattern for prayer. And we're going to cover that a little bit more here, uh, a little bit more in depth uh, so he prays to God. First he gives God glory. Then he repents. 
and then he makes a request. So this is how it goes. I'm not going to read the whole section here. I'm just going to read little little tidbits of you know where we get you know kind of our, our pattern here. First section here is uh, when Daniel first starts his prayer off, he says, well, the uh, book of Daniel says, then I turned my face toward the Lord. Okay, so this wasn't just a, a quick prayer. He wasn't just closing his eyes real quick and, and being like, all right, Lord, it's time to go back. Do it. You know, it wasn't one of those prayers. This was a, a very, very sincere, very fervent prayer. It says he set his, his face toward God. Literally, I mean, he, he's, he's sitting down in a position and, you know, he's, he's ready to pray. That's what, what's going on here. Secondly, he starts off, he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God. A little bit on down, it says, who keeps, uh, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So the first thing that Daniel does when he opens his prayer up is he gives God praise. He calls him the great God, an awesome God, who, a God who keeps his commandments, keeps his covenants. He's basically giving glory to God. That's how you open a prayer up. You give glory to the Creator, the God over everything. You give him glory first. And we talked about this as the same pattern that Jesus used in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He gives praise to God prior to anything because God alone is worthy of praise. Next section here. He says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. He goes on, All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. What's he doing here? He's recognizing his sins, not only his sins, but the sins of, his, of the entire nation, the entire nation of Israel. He is praying on their behalf, and he includes himself in that prayer. It's not just those rebellious people out there. No, he says we. He identifies with the nation of Israel that the nation itself has rebelled against God. So he's identifying his sin, and the sin of the nation. He's repenting for it. And then he can go on. In the last section here, it goes on for quite a long time identifying the, the sins of the nation and just how they have you know, rebelled against God. The last section, though, starts off, says, O Lord, According to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Further on, it says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. And then finally it says, My God, incline your ear and hear. O your, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. So the last section there is his request. He is humbly requesting. It's like, God, you are great. We have sinned. We've really messed up here. 
Now please, we recognize what's going on. Please keep your word. You know, we're turning back to you. We're now starting to keep our side of the covenant. Keep your word and restore us to where we are supposed to be. It's not like he has to remind God what's going on. What he's doing here is he's letting God know we know why we're in captivity. We know why we're being punished. We know why we're here. We recognize that. We broke the covenant. We're ready to keep that covenant now. So it's more of a, a recognition of what's going on. And that's how Daniel prays. I mean, he, he gives praise, he repents, and then he requests humbly of God, Lord, keep your promise. And of course, God always keeps promises. Next uh, little bit here is, uh, I have a note, that prayer does not change God's mind. Nor would you want it to. God's, the intention of prayer is to bring us into harmony with God's will. God wants what's best for us. That doesn't mean that always good things are going to happen to us. We look at, All we have to do is look at Romans 8.28 and see that, uh, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say, all things will be good. It says, all things will work together for good. So bad things are going to happen. It's just the nature of living in a fallen world. But even the bad things will work together for an ultimate good. So when we pray, we are coming into harmony with God's will. And that we are accepting that what God has, has in store for us is the best thing for us. You remember, you know, Jesus even said that, uh, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, he's asking God for, you know, that the cup be passed from him, that he won't have to go to the cross, but he understands that he has to, but he says, yet not my will, but thy will be done. God's will ultimately is done. Alright. Now let's go on to the return. So here Daniel is, is actually uh, reading the scripture and, and getting ready for it. But now we actually go into the return itself. And we find that in Ezra 1, 1-7. through 7. So let's go ahead and read that. And it says here, Ezra 1, <clears throat> verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers 
house of Judah and Benjamin, and the priest of the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and all who were with all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beast, and with costly wares, because all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. All right. So what's happening here? First, Cyrus, who took over Babylon initially, he ordered that the house of God be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus, uh, and I got this out of the MacArthur Study Bible, says uh, Josephus recorded that Daniel was the one who actually read the prophecies to Cyrus and kind of prompted him into this action. So, Cyrus, he says, uh, he says here, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. So, he's acknowledging God. And now he's saying, the people of God, you are allowed to go and go do that. So, who responds to that? Not everybody responds. It says, Judah and Benjamin, were the only, uh, along with the uh, priests and the Levites, responded. Of course, Judah and Benjamin were the two tribes that inhabited Judah. The reason it doesn't mention any of the other tribes is because they weren't there. The other tribes got carried away when Assyria came in and attacked like 200 years earlier. And they're gone now. So Judah and Benjamin are the only ones left. So Judah and Benjamin, the head of those tribes, they're responding. Also the Levites, because the Levites didn't have a, a territory of their own. Uh, they were kind of intermingled with all the, uh, the tribes. The Levites and the priests uh, also responded. Now you also remember that not all priests, well, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The tribe of Levi, or Levi, as uh, I guess is more accurately pronounced, um, the tribe of Levi was given the responsibility of, you know, building the tabernacle, guarding the tabernacle, tearing it down, carrying it along. So all of the tribe of Levi had those responsibilities. But the priestly responsibilities fell only to those people who were descended from the line of Aaron, because only Aaron's family were the priests. So you had to be a, of the tribe of Levi in order to be a priest, but you couldn't be a priest unless you were also descended directly from Aaron. So a little bit of a, you know, that's why there's a, a designation there, the priest and the Levites. So, these are the people that responded initially, of course, uh, but not all of the people, so the heads of the, the tribes responded, but that doesn't mean that all of the tribe responded. One person that did respond was a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the rightful king of Judah. He was the grandson of Jeroachim, uh, and thusly, he was the heir to the throne. He should have been the king, had you know they not gone into captivity and things happened. Um, now, when he returned to Jerusalem, 
he wasn't made king. He was made governor over Judah. And there's a difference there. And the reason there was a difference was because Jeremiah had pronounced a curse upon Jerochin and his family. And that, that curse is found in Jeremiah 22, 24 through 30. Let's go ahead and look at that. Okay, now the words or the names here are a little bit different. But uh, Kaniah is Jeroachim. <clears throat> Just kind of set that up. Verse 24 says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring of uh, on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid of, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, they shall not return. Is this man Kaniah a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into the land that they not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling Judah again. So that's quite a declaration there. What, what's happening here is Jeremiah is prophesying. Uh, he's told them over and over and over again, this is your punishment. The Lord has declared Judah will be taken down to Babylon. Surrender. They have not done so. What they're doing instead is they're trying to fortify the city. They're trying to withhold, uh, you know, hold on to Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah is telling them to surrender and go, and you'll you'll keep your lives. But they're constantly not uh, <clears throat> not doing that. So Jeremiah he pronounces a, a curse from the Lord on the house of. Uh, Jeho Jehoah, yeah. Can't even speak here. Uh, lost my place, too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he, he pronounced a, a curse on the, the house of Jehoiakim, and his son, namely Jehoiachin, said that no one in his family would be allowed to rule as a king again. Well, like I said, Zerubbabel is, in fact, the king. But because of that curse, the Lord's not going to allow him to rule as king again. So he's appointed as the ruler of this section, but he's a governor. He's not the king. So the next question is, well, what about Jesus? Because Jesus is of the house of David. Why is he allowed to rule as Messiah? Now that, that's a really interesting question here. So who was... How does Jesus, I guess possess the right to rule. Well, his father was Joseph. But you remember, Joseph was not his blood father. He was his adopted father. Because the Holy Spirit was his father. So, according to Jewish law, 
Joseph was allowed to adopt Jesus, and thus all of his rights were bestowed upon Jesus. So through the adoption of Jesus, Jesus gains the authority to be king. Okay. Now, Joseph can trace his lineage straight back through Jehoiachin and all the way up through. But because Jesus isn't of the same blood that Joseph is, this curse is bypassed. But another interesting thing is, Mary is also of royal blood. Uh, Matthew uh, traces the lineage of Joseph, and that's in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. He traces the lineage of Joseph down, and you can see he's direct descendant of, of David in the kingly line. Whereas Mary, Luke traces her uh, lineage, and that is in Luke 3, 23 through 28, traces her lineage back up through a different son of David, completely bypassing that cursed line. So Jesus both has the blood of a king through a different path to David, and then uh, but he has the authority to rule through Joseph and bypasses the curse because he's not actually the son of Joseph. So that, it's just a, a great little thing. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit plans all this out and just makes everything work together. It's almost like, almost like there was a plan before the foundation of the earth was laid that God had set into motion here. It's amazing that. Anyhow, moving on. So not everyone in Judah decided to go back. Even though Zerubbabel was going back, their rightful king, not everyone decided to go back. Ezra, uh, in chapter 2, verse 64, says, The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. So 42,000 people, uh, plus another like 7,500 of, of servants went back. Now that is quite a few less than the number that went down there. Remember there were three periods where uh, the Jews were deported down to, uh, down to Babylon. And the thought here is that there are three periods where the people are going back to, uh, to Judah. And that's so everyone basically experiences the 70 years of captivity. But another reason you can think about here is many of the Jews had never seen their homeland. You remember, it's been 70 years. Only the oldest of them even remember Judah. Daniel was 15 years old when he was brought down into captivity. He's an old, old man. He's in late 80s, early 90s right now. Uh, very old man. So, I mean, most of the people that are living there, they've, they've never even known Judah. They're leaving their home in Babylon to go back to a place they've never been before. So you see there's a, probably some difficulty in going back anyway. That's probably why it took so long for people to actually get up and go. Um, and lastly, of course, uh, this all happened. Zerubbabel led the return in about 537 B.C. So, when they got back there, they got back to Judah, there was a conflict that arose. You remember, they were assigned by Cyrus to go back in to build the temple. So, let's read in Ezra 4, 1 through 5. 
Do-do-do. And it says, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of the house and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers of the house of Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, a king, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we got a little conflict going on here. And we need to examine what's happened in history to figure out exactly what's going on here, to get the right context for for what's happening. We fast forward to New Testament times, and we find there that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along at all. Uh, even you know when Jesus went to the, the well of Jacob and, and found the Samaritan woman sitting there, you know, there was a, a lot of reasons why the the disciples were shocked that he was talking to her. One, she was a woman, and they weren't allowed to, men were not allowed to talk to women in those days, uh, in that fashion, in public, that is. And two, she was a Samaritan, and the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. Well, why did they hate one another? Well, the reason is because the ten tribes uh, of Israel that lived in Israel, well, lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, when Assyria came in and defeated them, those tribes were dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. A few people remained inside the, of Israel, but most of them were dispersed through the empire. Well, with the Jews being dispersed, other people came into the land to live. The Jews that were living there, they intermarried with these other people, these foreigners that were not Israelites, um, and that caused problems. Of course, the people that were es uh, exported outside of Israel also married those people, and that's where we get the lost tribes of Israel. The big thing in the Old Testament was you had to maintain the bloodline of you know, whoever, whatever tribe you were descended from. You had to maintain that bloodline because your inheritance was given in accordance with that bloodline. You only owned land within a certain area of Israel because you were descended from this person. You now owned this spot of land. Well, there's a problem here because the Jews had married outside of their bloodlines, destroying the purity of their bloodlines. So they were no longer, you know, the Jews of that day no longer considered them real Jews. They were uh, half-breeds, if you will. Um, so the Jewish people of, you know, the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin, they didn't like the Samaritans because they saw them as, as being half-breeds. 
Secondly, the reason why they did not like them was because they were worshipping all kinds of idols and foreign gods. You remember the whole... When they came, uh, when the Assyrians came into the land of Judah, uh, bad things started happening to them. And they actually sent out for priests, uh, you know, Jewish priests, to come back and teach them about the God that was in this land because they didn't want to offend God. So they somewhat worshipped God. And what I mean by somewhat was they did the ritual practices of you know burning sacrifices, things like that, but they didn't truly worship God because they worshipped other gods in that area as well. So, uh, the, the Jews had just spent 70 years in captivity, and now they have to turn around and deal with the Assyrians or these Samaritans that are coming down and wanting to you know, participate in the, the rebuilding of the temple. And they understand, we don't want anything to do with these people. They're idolatrous. They still worship foreign gods, even though they say they worship our God and are burning the sacrifice to our God. We don't want anything to do with them. We've learned our lesson. We're done with that. So they denied them. And they said, no, we're, you, you don't have to help us. Matter of fact, you're not going to help us. Um, the order to rebuild the temple came from Cyrus. And this is what they tried to do. They're basically using the authority of Cyrus to say, Cyrus told us to rebuild the temple. You have nothing to do with us. We are going to rebuild the temple. So they tried to kind of get around um, any objection because you know Cyrus had commanded them to do it. Of course, that wasn't good enough for the Samaritans, and they spent the next 16 years trying to, well, they it, Bible says they bribed the counselors, they frustrated their purposes, they basically sabotaged the work and made it impossible for the Jews to rebuild the temple of God. And this went on for a 16-year period. Uh, all the rest of the days of Cyrus uh, and into the rule of Darius. Now, Cy uh, the delay itself was from about 536 to 520. Darius took uh, control of the kingdom in 521 and reigned to about 486 BC. So, in the second year of Darius, um, the prophets, and you know, if you, you read through the Old Testament, you'll find this the prophets Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied that, all right, it is, it's time to rebuild, you know, begin the work again. You've, you've spent the last 16 years here doing other things, building other things in Jerusalem. Now it's time to stop doing all of that and actually focus on rebuilding the temple. So, this was brought about when Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, he sent a letter to King Darius and said, We've went into Jerusalem, we've seen the people here, they're rebuilding a temple to God. Who ordered that? Would you? They say that King Cyrus did. Would you mind searching the archives in Babylon to see if King Cyrus actually did order that? And, you know, because they're doing a good job. We just want to see what's going on. And, of course, uh, King Darius did do that. We see that in Ezra 6, 7 through 12. Go ahead and read through that. 6, 7. Bam. 
They searched through the records, they found what they were looking for, the decree from Cyrus to rebuild the temple, and this is what Darius says about that. He says, Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled upon it, and his house shall be made into a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put a hand out to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Now that's a pretty big uh, decree there. He's saying, yeah, Cyrus uh, did command that. I'm going a little bit further. Make sure that these men are paid. Make sure they're given anything that they want in a timely fashion. And if anyone tries to stop them, <laughs> let a beam be taken from their house. Basically, let them be killed and their house and their you know, house destroyed. We talked about the houses being turned into dung hills last week, where they would destroy the house, you know, kill the family, destroy the house, uh, and turn it into a refuse area where, you know, basically a public restroom, making it into a literal dung hill. So, Darius goes very far in, into making this. Uh, rebuilding of the temple or a reality so uh, it says the temple itself uh, was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of the king of uh, Darius the king that's found in Ezra 615 so the temple got re people returned the temple got rebuilt and we go on in history one last note um, I have here, and this is our next section, is how do we differentiate between Darius and Cyrus? Because that's a big question that we run into when we start looking through Daniel, and then we jump into Ezra and, and Haggai and uh, Zechariah. Darius seems to be a, this different person. So, in Daniel 5.30... Remember, this was right after uh, the the finger on the wall was, was writing that uh, the king had been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Uh, it says, That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Okay? So Daniel talks about Darius taking over Babylon. Now we move forward into Daniel 9.1. It says, in the year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, when Daniel began his prayer to God about the return to Israel, he again talks about Darius being the king. So, here again, he's talking about Darius. Well, jump back to Isaiah and Isaiah's prophecies. And we find this in Isaiah 44 and 45. Darius specifically names Cyrus. 
as the person who took over Babylon. So there's a discrepancy here between Isaiah and Daniel. Uh, of course, the decree in Ezra 1 talks about the decree of Cyrus, and then Darius, who took over after Cyrus, uh, he's the one that actually you know forced the temple to be rebuilt. So here we see a, a difference between Cyrus and Darius, whereas in Daniel, Cyrus and Darius seem to be the same person if we're going to make Isaiah and Daniel agree, because Isaiah says Cyrus took over Babylon, Daniel says Darius took over Babylon. So, what is the answer here? Well, there's a couple things that we, we could look at. If you go to the view of uh, some of the textual critics, when they look to see you know, if the Bible was recorded properly, who recorded it, where we actually get this from Scripture, and make sure that it's accurate. Um, some of the textual critics say, well, there's an error here. Daniel misidentified the person that was, uh, that was in charge, and that there, there's just an error here. And it's, the error is relating to back to um, Isaiah. Darius here in Daniel should just be Cyrus. I don't believe that. I believe that the Bible is the infallible, inherent Word of God, and that if it says something, that that is what happened. So I need to look for another explanation for that. The other explanations, I think, make a, a lot of sense here. Uh, one is Darius is, is possibly could be a title and not a proper name. Okay, That's a good possibility. Uh, in Daniel 6.28, it talks about Darius and, and Cyrus together. And if you look at Daniel 6.28, it can actually be translated as Darius, even Cyrus. So it kind of says that Darius is Cyrus, that it's just another name for him. Could be a title or something here. Um, also, and this was in the MacArthur Study Bible, it says uh, Darius is found in inscriptions referencing five different Babylon or five different Persian rulers. So it kind of leads to the evidence that maybe this is a title and not just a name. Um, another uh, possibility is that Darius is a name for the governor uh, Gubaru and he's the governor of Babylon. It's not King Cyrus. Darius is a separate person but he is a governor at this time. So my view is that it's probably a title given to the king, and in this fashion, since there were multiple kings named Darius, you know, sometimes they differentiate a king by a, a different name by Cyrus. Sometimes they differentiate him by uh, his title. So that is my view on it: that they are two separate people here. That there is no error in the scripture. That there are just uh, it's a little bit confusing with the names. So, what do we learn from this story? Kind of brings us to the end of our time here. First thing we learn is, prayer does not change God's mind. Prayer only brings us into harmony with God's will. When Daniel prayed, he wasn't asking God to change his mind. He was saying, God, your punishment's been fulfilled. We understand that. Keep your promise. Bring us home. And that's what God does. When we come into accordance with his will... You know, his will will be done. 
We just need to figure out how to get there. So God always uh, keeps his promise. He's always faithful to his promise. He keeps his side of the covenant. When we don't keep our side, that's when you know we go astray and, and bad things start happening, as the Israelites found out. When they were ready to come home, and they admitted their sins, gave God the glory that he deserved, God allowed them to come home. So, that's our lesson for this week. Trust in God, and all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. One of my favorite verses. So, that brings us to the end. I hope you join us back here next week. Next week we're going to be looking at Esther and what she did for the Jewish people and how she was in the right place at the right time for a moment such as this. And I'll try to not uh, talk about any of the, the VeggieTales uh, references. Though I do enjoy the, the land of perpetual tickling. So that, regardless, we'll, uh, we'll not cover that next week. But we will talk about Esther. So, um, until then, I guess we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. So, have a good week. Join us back here and keep studying, keep praying, keep on believing. Have a good week.